Hi, good evening, folks. Welcome to Equip. Thank you to those that are here in the room with us. Uh, those that are online, watching online, we want to welcome you, whether you're watching this uh, live right now, one of our streaming platforms, or you're joining us sometime later in the week. I've downloaded this on podcast. We're grateful for the opportunity to reach you. However, we're doing it. I hope that you have had a good week. I've had a relatively busy week, and so it's, um, but this is always one of my favorite times. I look forward to spending Wednesday evenings with you, uh, talking about God's Word and whatever subject it is uh, we're, uh, we're working through. So let me open us in prayer, and then I'll introduce our subject for tonight. God, we thank you uh, that we can be here. I know that everybody has, has been walking different paths over the last uh, several days, I know my path here uh, in the last few days and really last few weeks have been, been pretty busy. A lot going on, a lot going on in our church, a lot to do, uh, but we're grateful, God, for all the things that you've put before us. And so whether somebody's coming in uh, today, uh, having spent all day at work, uh, maybe they've been uh, taking care of their family today, maybe they've been running errands and having other things to do, um, it's nice that we can be together. And so thank you for the gathered saints of God here at Nansman River Baptist Church. And we're thankful, God, for those who are joining us elsewhere as well. We pray that you would bless our time that we spend together. Uh, help us as we think uh, about sharing the gospel with every person and that, that people are coming from different walks of life. Um, and uh, would, you, would you convict us today over the way that we think about those people uh, but also sharpen us and make us better witnesses uh, for you, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, this is our third week in this fall equip uh, semester. And as we continue this series over discovering how we proclaim the gospel for all, I want to just go over a couple of reminders to you uh, in what we're doing and what we're hoping to accomplish I think it's uh, clear for us that we are a church that wants to proclaim the gospel to everyone, trusting that God is the one who uh, changes hearts and brings people into the light of his glorious grace. But uh, we are tasked with the responsibility of making disciples in this world. And part of making disciples in this world is proclaiming the gospel to people. And it's easy for us to proclaim the gospel to people who are like us. It's easy to proclaim the gospel to our children as we raise them or uh, maybe uh, to one another, even as we speak the truth in love, as we make disciples within our church. But as we think about the fact that there are people around in our community and around the world who have varying views of uh, varying worldviews, varying religious backgrounds, uh, different ways of approaching the subject of religion, Christianity, faith, God, however we want to think about it, we end up recognizing that there are uh, varying levels, uh, degrees of difficulty as we seek to engage people with the gospel. And so what I hope to do at the beginning of this series was equip you, or as a reminder really for many of you on uh, a, a, a way that we try to seek to have gospel conversations and interject the gospel into those conversations with people. Um, and then last week we started looking at, at varying, uh, I don't know that people groups is the right term, but varying uh, different types of people, ways that people are thinking. And so what we looked at last week was probably the one that's most ingrained in our culture just because of where we live and who we are. And that is the cultural Christians, those who uh, are not Christians. I recommended a book to you uh, by Dean and Sarah called... Um, um, the unsaved Christian. And uh, we looked at five different types of people who uh, may call themselves Christians, but if we really dig down deep, they're, they're not. And um, we're going to return to the idea of people within our culture who may consider themselves Christians, but don't have a biblical definition of Christianity in mind when they, when they would say that. Later in this series, we're going we're gonna to return to those people but today, we're going to kind of go to the far end, uh, staying within our culture, uh, and I'm trying to have a, a progression here, I, even though it's going to seem like from one week to the next, we're talking about very different subjects. Uh, I'm trying to have some 
type of progression. And so uh, the, probably the dominant person demographic in our culture right here in the southeastern part of Virginia um, would, would be people like those that I talked about last week, would claim Christianity. But if you really pressed in on what does that mean? Um, do you believe that Jesus is the only way that someone can be made right with God? Do you believe that you are a sinner, that you have sinned in such a way that you needed someone like Jesus to die in your place, offering remission of sin? Have you put your faith in Jesus Christ alone for the remission of your sin? Do you believe that only those who have put faith in Jesus uh, and, and have been born again will go to heaven? Those kind of questions, right? They would, they would end up departing from Orthodox Christian, biblically-based Christian understanding of that. That's probably the dominant position um, of people in our culture. As I walked through those five groups last week, I think it was uh, probably impossible for you not to think of someone in your immediate circle, your friends, your family, your neighbors, your coworkers, who fit in more, one or more, probably all five of those categories. Well, today we're going to go stay in our culture, but go to the other end. And while that, that cultural Christian may be the dominant view in, um, in you know, our part of our little corner of the world here in our corner of our culture, um, there is one that is quickly encroaching upon them as being the dominant. In some parts of America, who we're going to talk about today is the dominant uh, demographic, and they are certainly the fastest growing in the United States. Uh, within the last um, decade, 15 years or so, um, those who look at, at uh, religious demographics have taken to calling these people the nuns. Now that's not N-U-N as in like Catholic nuns that wear the black dresses and the black hoods and live in convents, okay? This is nuns as in N-O-N-E-S. These are the people that when they look at a demographic survey and it says, what, you know, religion are you? And they see Christianity or maybe they see, you know, Sometimes these surveys will divide out Christianity into things like evangelical Christianity, Protestant Christianity, Catholicism. Then there would be things like Hinduism, Buddhism, Islam. You know, you kind of go down the list and you get to the very end and there's typically an option that says none. These are people that check none, okay? And so that's why they've polling and demographic type people have taken to calling these people nuns, N-O-N-E-S, because that's what they would check on a poll or a demographic study of religion. And here's what you need to know. I think it's important for us to start off our conversation is this is from a religious standpoint. This is the fastest growing religious affiliation in American culture. They are growing faster than every other religion, even though it is not a religion, obviously. Nuns are the fastest growing demographic. I'm going to give you some of these statistics, and it's going to be, um, it's going to be rather staggering for you when you hear how much this has grown in the last uh, 10 to 15 years. But let me tell you kind of who fits in this group, because just like when, you know, if we were to think, okay... Who fits within evangelical Christianity? There are obviously subsets of evangelical Christianity, um, as, as there would be subsets even within Protestantism or subsets even as we'll get to Islam in a couple of weeks. There's subsets with, within that, um, within other types of religions. And so even amongst those who would check none on that type of demographic survey, um, there, are, there are subsets of that and three primary ones. And so when we're talking about these people who have no religious affiliation in, in our culture, uh, who are they? The largest group of them are people would say that they are nothing in particular. And we say, well, isn't that the same thing of saying none? Well, not really, because we're, we're going to have two other groups that are nuns, but are also something else. But the largest group of those, of those nuns, sometimes as much as, depends on who you're reading and listening to, maybe as much as 75% of these people just are nothing in particular. They actually rarely think about organized religion in any specific way. 
Um, they were likely raised to consider religion. Most of these would have come through um, some type of religious upbringing as you, as you look at um, demographic studies over the last uh, couple of decades. These people were raised as something as one point. Um, mo- in most cases, uh, they were raised in um, a more mainline Protestant denomination. They've seen more people transition from uh, mainline Protestantism into this category than anybody else. But there are certainly those that were raised in evangelical Christianity uh, who have transitioned into not believing in any, they're not really anything anymore. And that's, that group is growing. We're seeing that now. Um, uh, a What we were seeing in previous generations, kind of a flight out of Protestantism, we're now seeing that flight out of evangelicalism, and we need to be able to ask some questions about why. But these are people that are just kind of nothing. They're more neutral than others in this group towards religion. They're not going to necessarily be hostile to the fact that you're religious. They just don't even think about it. Uh, They don't see religion as being helpful. They don't see the need for God in their lives. In truth, they just go about their lives. And so if you ask this person, what is it that you believe in? They may have some type of answer. If you go back to what we talked about last winter when we were looking at worldview studies, these people are generally going to be secular humanists in that they believe in the power of mankind and in the collective to, you know, accomplish great things, but they don't really see a role um, for religion in that, but they're not necessarily in the main hostile to, um, to those who are religious. It's just not for them. They make up the majority of those who we would categorize as nuns, but there are two other groups. Uh, One of those groups is the agnostic. Now, I'm going to use two A words, agnostic being the first one. And agnostics have been around for a long time. That's nothing new, right? This idea that people are agnostic. The idea that people are not affiliated with any religious group is at least relatively new in human history. It, it, it used to be really unheard of that people wouldn't have thought about God at all or thought about religion at all. Uh, and even relatively unheard of through modernity. I mean, through the 1900s, you know, the 20th century, the vast majority of people had, had some type of either religious affiliation or religious objection, which is where agnostics and the next group would fit in. And what agnostics, what it means to be agnostic is that, that there are, they have significant questions uh, surrounding one or more of these issues. For instance, the existence of God, um, specific teachings about organized religion, the necessity of organized religion. So agnostics tend to say, okay, there's a God, that's fine. Maybe they even would profess their belief in a God, but they wouldn't see a need for, um, they wouldn't see a need for church. They wouldn't see a need for organized religion. They wouldn't see a need for the Bible because they would, their, their questions about God certainly out, and their questions about religion uh, outweigh any type of usefulness that they would see for God. So these would people, be people who, um, who have a more defined opinion. And as we kind of progress through this, you'll see, right? The, the uh, nothing in particular group really doesn't have very much of an opinion at all. It's just inconsequential to them. Agnostics have thought about it a little more and they have far more questions than they have answers. The other group is, you've probably already guessed, the other A is the atheist. The atheist is someone who does not believe in God and would say they do not believe in God, even though when I was doing some research for this, I found this very interesting. Um, when when um, m- most of the polls that are done for this are done by Pew Research, Pew does a pretty good job of surveying Americans on, on varying subjects and one of them, demographic subjects particularly, and one of them being religion, And in one, um, not new, but at least within the last several years, uh, Pew study that they did, they, um, they, they're the ones that kind of divided people into these nothing in particular agnostics and atheists. And they asked all of them, um, you know, 
do you believe in God at all, right? So the nothing in particular, the agnostics and the atheists. And 90% of those that considered themselves atheists said they don't believe in God, which means 10% of people that think they're atheists are confused about what it means to be an atheist. <laughs> because to be an atheist means you don't believe in God. So one out of 10, so at least according to that pupil, one out of 10 people who self-identify as an atheist are, are really confused about what they truly are because to be an atheist is to not believe in God. Um, and uh, these, these people are more likely uh, than the others in the group to be hostile to the idea of organized religion. Now, that doesn't mean they have to be ugly about it. Some atheists obviously are ugly about their position, but I have also found that some Christians or at least people who claim to be Christians, are ugly about their position, okay? So to be hostile towards something does not necessitate that they are going to be um, uh, uncaring, but, but they are definitely going to often see religion as a, religion and religious activity and religious devotion as being a negative and not a positive, particularly as it relates to uh, religion and religious beliefs as being a controlling factor in one's life. So these, if, if the largest group of the nuns is the nothing in particular, and they've thought very little about religious involvement, the existence of God, morality from a, from a uh, religious perspective, atheists have thought a lot about it and have come to the conclusion that religion is unhelpful, that God does not exist, and that really the best thing for us to do is, is to, to walk away from uh, ancient religions like Christianity, Islam, Hinduism, and some of, and, and pretty much anything else, to be purely devoted towards um, the humanistic ideals. So that's who we're talking about when we say none. It, that the, it, we're talking about these three different groups, which have some unique characteristics between the nothing in particulars, the agnostics, and the atheists. But nonetheless, these are people that have no religious affiliation. Uh, in our culture. Now, what percentage of the population is in this category? You may be interested to know some of this. I told you at the beginning um, that these people make up the, uh, the fastest growing demographic in our culture, and they do. They're still not the majority. Some people, act, some people act as if, some people inside this group or outside this group act as if this group is the majority. They are not, um, but they, if if demographic, if demographic trends hold, they will be the majority. I don't know if you saw this, um, but a, a uh, uh, poll was conducted last year uh, about church membership. It wasn't about this subject, but it was about church membership. And for the first time in American history, less than a majority of Americans are uh, church members. Are, and when they use church, they mean of any like specific religious organization. So in all of American history, more than 50% of Americans have been a specific member of a church, synagogue, or mosque, all right? And we would use the term church very loosely uh, there to, to include pretty much any kind of organized religious. And uh, for all of American history, for most of American history, it was far beyond 50%. And at some places, 80, 90, and above, but for the first time in American history, we've dipped below 50%. So church members are actually in the minority now, but we're still have a plurality. We're still the largest group. So people that are directly associated with some type of religious organization are, are, um, still, the largest, are still the largest group, but they're quickly gaining. So if we look back, we don't have to look back all that far. If you look back just to 2007, all right, 2007, which was not all that long, it's 14 years ago, right? 15% of Americans would have checked none. I have no religious affiliation at all. I'm not anything, uh, or I'm an agnostic or an atheist, right? So that's 15% of the United States. Five years later, another large study was done in 2012, and it had risen to just under for our purposes, we're going to say 20%. So there was 5%, uh, we went from 15% to 20%, uh, which, which means that group 
um, grew by 33% because 15, right? 5% of 15 is what they added. That's a significant jump. And then another, some other more recent polls were done uh, in 2017, 2019, 2020, that has kind of tracked this progress. And it depends on who you read and what we see. But today, the best estimate is somewhere between 26 and 32% of Americans would categorize themselves as being nothing. They have no, no religious affiliation at all. If we go on the high side of this, when we look at kind of the growth curve from, 20, from 2007 to 2021, we're seeing a growth of about 1% a year. And you say, well, 1%, that doesn't sound like a whole lot. In demographic trends, 1% a year is, is monumental. To put that into numerical terms, right? There are somewhere in the neighborhood, I'm just gonna use a round number, somewhere in the neighborhood of 350 million people that live in the United States. It's 330, maybe, maybe close to 340 million people, but let's just say 350 million people. That's where we're quickly heading in the, that live in the United States. If 1% of those go from being, I believe in something to I believe in nothing, you're talking about three and a half million people every year right now in the United States are making that transition. That's a significant amount of people, right? That means over the course of two and a half years, the entire state of Virginia went from being nothing or went from being something to being nothing. That's a lot, right? There's eight and a half million people that live in Virginia, something like that. Um, so, so if you're on the low end, right, the low estimate right now is maybe 25, 26% of the United States, one in four people up to maybe 32%. So maybe as much as one in three people. Now, many of these people don't live that, that statistic would obviously go down here in Southeast Virginia. It would go down even further in other places in the Southeast part of the United States. It would go further down. You go out to like West, the Western part of our state. Now you go up to the Northern part of our state, you go up to Nova and that that's going to increase. So the, the, the larger cities that you get into, particularly Northeast cities and West Coast cities, this number is going to increase well beyond 50% of the population. Um, so this, this is, you know, kind of some interesting stuff. Now, again, most of these people are just nothing in particular. Probably today, somewhere in the neighborhood of 18 to 20% of people in the United States are just nothing in particular. They just don't even think about it. That means one out of five people in America today aren't thinking about religion at all. It just has no bearing on their lives. They're not thinking about God at all. They, they have no need for church. They're not, they don't object to the idea of church. They just don't really have a need for it at all. Think about that. One out of five people in the United States. Only about four to 5% of people in America think of themselves as being atheist and just a few more, maybe five to 6% of Americans think about themselves as being agnostic. But both of those groups are growing. While nothing in particular still makes up the majority of these kind of nuns, uh, atheists and agnostics are, are growing. More people are becoming more and more hostile to the idea of um, the thought of God and, and Christianity. And obviously, this would not be a surprise to you to learn um, that younger generations uh, fi fill out more of these people than, than others. Uh, some... Um, People who have studied this say as many as 35%, so maybe as much as one in three millennials. Um, that's people born, depends on what you're looking at, people born from around 1980, 1982 to, to uh, 2000 or the late 90s, something like that. Um, so people in their 20s to early 40s or late 30s, one in three of those. Um, Gen X, it's a hard one to nail down, maybe one in four Gen Xers, even amongst baby boomers, right? Kind of our, our younger senior adult population at the moment um, is still about 17% of baby boomers, just aren't even thinking about it at all. One in 10 of our older senior adult population, uh, those born in the 1940s uh, or the early 1940s, uh, late 1930s, um, about one in 10 of them. So, so we're seeing this across generational, but obviously it's, it's backloaded into, into younger generations. When they're asked why they identify, because we really want to ask this question, okay, so why? Like, why do these people think the way that they do? Um, for, for the two specifics, for the atheists and the agnostics, uh, very large percent, 70% or more, uh, 
give uh, the primary reason as being they question a lot of religious teachings. They've heard, because remember, these are people that are agnostics and atheists are people that are actually asking the question, right? They're, they're asking questions and they're coming to answers that are contrary to uh, Christianity and really contrary to other religions as well. And, and you're talking about 70% or more are, are saying, I've, I've looked into it and I have, I have you know, specific uh, opposition. Um, uh, for others, maybe as, as much as 50% of all of these groups say would attribute it some, so, some sort of social or political stance uh, within a particular religion. So the fact that, that uh, evangelicals would be opposed to things like abortion, uh, have a traditional definition of marriage, uh, and we see that playing out in our culture. Obviously, as I told you, 90% of atheists in America say they don't believe in God, which means one in 10 atheists are just really confused about what they actually do believe. Um, about one third of agnostics say they don't believe in God, which means they're also confused about what they believe because an agnostic doesn't necessarily not believe in God. They just question uh, our understandings of God. And about one in five, about 20% of the I'm just kind of nothing, nothing in particular. About one in five of them say they don't believe in God. So about 80% of those people, think about that. 80% of people who would say they're just nothing in particular do believe in God. They just don't know what that God is. They've created them. And we saw this when we were looking at worldviews. You know, postmodern culture just says believe in whatever you, whatever you want to believe in. And they've kind of created their own mixture uh, in, in their heads. I do find this... Very interesting. This is going to transition us into um, how do we reach these kind of people when we, when we encounter them. I know that today's been a lot of statistics. I'm not going to give you a lot of statistics every week, but when you're looking at demographics and, and people that don't believe in anything, right? You, statistics is really kind of the only way that you can go. And I wanted to show you the growth of this in, in our own culture and why, why this is becoming so popular. Um, but this, this last statistic helps us transition. Uh, in one of those Pew Research studies, they asked them, are you actively seeking a religion that is right for you? Not are you seeking Christianity, are you seeking, you know, but are you seeking a religion that you can subscribe to, that, that seems right to you? And nine out of 10 said no. So of this 30, maybe 30, 32% of Americans right now in our world, in our culture, who say I'm nothing or I'm an agnostic or I'm an atheist, would check none on that demographic study. Nine out of 10 of those people are not even looking. Now, there is some hope in that at least one out of 10 are, are at least open to the idea, right? They're, they're hoping that they can find something that's out there. But the vast majority have moved past the looking stage. They see no, they see no need for religion at all, or they've progressed to the point where they are, they're openly hostile to the idea that God exists and it's communicated to us through his word or in, or in any other way. So this is kind of sobering, right? That this is the fastest growing religious demographic in uh, our culture. It does not seem to be slowing down. It seems to be gaining speed. Uh, growing as fast as 1% a year. Obviously, if, you can, if this continues to grow at 1% a year, uh, we are but one generation away from them becoming a majority of the United States and a couple of generations away from them being not only a majority, but a dominant view. So that's, that, should be, that should be sobering to us as Christians who, who claim to have um, a right understanding of who God is um, and a clear understanding of what God's word has told us man must do to be made right with God, that, that we um, have, we believe in what, what is known as the exclusivity of the gospel, that we don't get to create our own way, we don't get to create our own understanding of God, but that we have a very exclusive gospel, um, that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father but through him, right? Like we have this, we have this, core belief. And we share that core belief with millions of other Christians here in our culture and around the world. Uh, and yet what is gaining steam in Western civilization, at least in the United States, this is already gaining, this more of the, the, these statistics are even worse in places like Europe, Western Europe, at least. Um, 
this should be sobering to us. And then when we think about the fact that this is really becoming dominant in younger generations, those 40 and under, particularly those, um, we're, we're seeing it's going to be even worse. Uh, and Pastor Michael's going to come in a few weeks and talk to us about that next generation, uh, about Gen Z, right? Those current teenagers that, you know, are living in some of our houses right now or are uh, your grandchildren, you know, or maybe are going to be living in your house soon as your kids, your elementary and preschool age kids grow up. Um, we're seeing this, we're starting to see that this trend is going to just continue to boom amongst them. So then we have to ask this question. So what do we do? Because inevitably you have some of these people in your life. You certainly have people in your life that just, just don't think about it. It's just not an important question to them. I I spend, you know, I don't know, I've done this job for a long time and I I spend every day thinking about the church (laughs) And I hope you spend every day thinking about the Lord and his word. And, and uh, it, it is almost a foreign concept to me that someone would wake up and go throughout their whole day and not ever think about how important God is and what it is God wants us to do and what it is God, how important God's people are to, to my life and to your life and, and the mission that we share together. But the fact that millions and millions of people in our culture, in our backyard, our friends, family, neighbors, coworkers are waking up today and not even thinking about it that there are millions of them out there right now who are not even thinking about it. It, um, it used to be strange. I can remember I was in college. Um, we took a mission trip to Las Vegas with our, our college ministry. I went to a secular college, a state, state school, but we had a really active um, uh, campus ministry. And one year I was the, um, for the campus ministry, I was the missions coordinator. Shouldn't probably surprise y'all. I love talking about missions. And uh, I remember sitting down with our campus minister and he was like, he was like, okay, we always plan a spring break mission trip. Where, where do you want to go? And I was like, well, let's just go somewhere that's different. Right. And he's like, well, I have a friend planted a church in Las Vegas. I was like, Fantastic. Let's go there. Right. Cause who doesn't want to go with a bunch of 20 somethings to you know, college students to Las Vegas. It was a lot of fun. We all got stomach virus. The first two days it was fantastic. Um, so anyway, we did, and we, one of the things we did several days of like evangelism, right. And that was my first experience with people who had never heard about Jesus before. Like you would go and you would talk to people and they'd be like, I have no idea who this Jesus is you're even talking about. It was really eye-opening to a 20, I was 21 at the time. Um, It was really pretty eye-opening, right? And um, I mean, that was 20 years ago for me. I'm 41 now. So that was was half my life ago. And um, wow. Wow. but think how much that's progressed from 2001, not 2001, it was 2002, so it was 22. Uh, from then to, to now, we all know these people. These people don't know anything. So, so what do we do? How do we then live in that culture, specifically thinking about how do we invade the darkness with light? How do we transition to gospel conversations? And um, what are some things that, that we should do? I want to give you four things to think about here over the next half hour as we, as we kind of transition to this second part. So ways that we reach the nuns with the gospel. The first may seem, um, uh, it, 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 it may seem kind of simplistic, but I think above everything else, all the other demographics that we're going to talk about in weeks to come, um, I think this is most important amongst this group of people. And that is to actually live authentically in front of them. Be real with what's happening in your life. Um, I think we, modern Christianity, I, think, I, believe, I truly believe this is getting better in some ways and getting worse in others um, within, within Christianity. I think it's, there's a growing need, a growing concern for authenticity in Christianity. I think we went through a period of Christianity uh, in, in Western civilization where being authentic was not very prized, where being perfect, right? Being, you know, putting on, putting on the front was, was more prized than authenticity. I see authenticity, uh, the, the, at least a need for authenticity growing within, within Christianity. The problem is what's counteracting that is the pervasive uh, influence of social media where nobody is authentic. 
can we just all be honest? I know not all of you are on social media, but most of you probably are. I mean, it's just pervasive in our culture, even uh, throughout all of, throughout most of our generations. Um, nobody's, nobody's authentic. Look, everybody's doctoring their pictures. Everybody's taking, you know, 10 pictures to post one. Um, everybody's trying to make it look like we've got it all together. You know, that's, that's just kind of the, that, that's the way social media works. Right. Um, and, and so we, we've got that like influence, that pressure from one side, but I see this growing need, and maybe it's because of that, this kind of growing need and cry within the church for, can we just be authentic with each other and tell each other where we struggle and where we hurt? And can I just be honest with you that I'm not perfect and neither are you? And if, if we could get to a point where we could just admit that to each other, maybe we could help each other. Um, and, and so fortunately you kind of see that growing, uh, in, within the church. And, and I'm, and I'm proud to say like, as, as, as our church, I don't think we're, I think we've arrived there. I don't think we're doing that perfectly, but I, I do believe we're building that in particularly within our small groups where there is a, uh, growing sense of community and people are willing to say, all right, I'm, I'm going to pull back the curtain and show you that, that our family's not perfect, that I'm not perfect. Um, and, and that I need your help to, to sanctify, you know, in my sanctifying process, you need, you need my help in that. Well, that same authenticity, that need for authenticity specifically applies when we're trying to represent why it is we believe the gospel to people who see no need in it or are totally hostile to it. Because one of the objections that uh, particularly athe- atheists and agnostic people will give towards Christianity and the belief that we have in this loving, benevolent, all-knowing, all-powerful God is the fact that there are moral evils in our world. Look, everybody recognizes that morality exists. Okay, now we may debate over what is moral and what is not, but everyone kind of recognizes that morality exists and that there is great evil in our world, even if they don't see themselves as evil. This is known as the problem of evil or the problem of suffering. And it, it's, it's longstanding. Lots of people, I mean, this goes back to, um, you know, Greek uh, philosophy. I mean, you used to, used to debate and talk about the problem of evil. And, and th- this is what a lot of people who don't believe in God have grabbed hold of is, how can there be suffering in a way? If God is loving, how can there be suffering? Why is there so much suffering and evil and pain and heartache and brokenness in our world? And when Christians paint themselves as these perfect, like I'm perfect, my spouse is perfect, my little you know, row of duckling children walking perfectly behind us into church in their Sunday clothes are also perfect and we never have any problems and all things are always good all the time. Like when we put that persona out there, it doesn't jive with the world that we see. And so what we want to communicate with, with people who, well, we ought to want to communicate with everybody, but it, we're specifically talking about this group of nuns here, is not to show them that we are perfect because we're not, but to actually show them the exact opposite. Is to say we deal with an imperfect world too. We are currently battling suffering as well. It, it's one of the great dangers, and I'm going to spend a week on this, uh, not just this subject, but this subject is going to be involved in. It's one of the great dangers of prosperity gospel in the influence of that in our world is because prosperity gospel demands that nothing ever be wrong. And if something is wrong, it's because you didn't have enough faith, right? And we kind of give into that unintentionally sometimes in conservative evangelical world because we want to paint this picture that nothing's wrong. But when the best thing that we can do is show how Jesus is greater than our suffering, Jesus is greater than the evil around us and that we trust in Jesus even though there is evil. We trust in Jesus as the solution for evil. We show that there is hope in the gospel even in the midst of suffering, both present and future, that my hope right now for the problem of evil in my life is Jesus. And my future hope for the problem of evil in our world is Jesus. This is why Peter said, 1 Peter chapter 3. He said, but in your heart, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks for a reason for the hope that is in you. 
But for people to ask for the reason of hope that is in you, you know what they have to need first? They have to be able to see why you need that hope. And if all, if the picture that we're always giving people is this inauthentic plastic version of ourselves that says nothing is ever wrong, no one is going to see the need for us to communicate the hope that is in us. Particularly this group of people who just doesn't see the need for God. They just don't see a need for it. Well, we know we have this great need for it. Even if we're not willing to be honest with everyone around us, even if we're not willing to be as authentic as we need to be, deep in our hearts, here's what we know. <laughs> we know that without Jesus, we have no hope. Because there, we understand just how, I think this is what coming to faith in Christ does and living a sanctified life over a period of time I grow more and more indebted to Christ because I recognize just how sinful I am and, and just how evil our world is and just how disobedient we, God's crowning work of his creation are towards him, including myself. And, and so this, we know that deep inside. So living an authentic life in front of these people instead of, you know, everything always being okay. And I know we say this within the context of Christian, you know, community as well. Like if something's not okay, don't say it's okay, right? How you doing today? Oh, I'm fine. Better than I deserve, you know, Dave, Dave Ramsey's quote, you know, right? What if I just said, I'm not doing great. You know, it's been rough, whatever it is. We actually, we're authentic. We need to do that outside the church as well. Being ready to give a reason for the hope that is in you. Now, I'm going to come back to that first feeder three passage. So keep that in your mind as we go to our second thing here. Second one is this. Be genuine in listening to concerns and objections. And when I say be genuine in listening, here's what I mean. Don't be argumentative. Be genuine. Actually be willing to sit down and listen to why someone is what they are. Um, I've, I've become really convinced of this in the last two or three years as, um, early part of my pastoral ministry, the people who were transitioning to nuns, and I said, this as a part of the introduction, um, people who were transitioning to nuns were primarily out of mainline Protestantism. They, they were coming out of mainline churches who had long ago abandoned, um, the authority of scripture, the inerrancy of scripture. They had walked away from the exclusivity of the gospel, many of them. Um, and so it was no surprise. And so being someone who is, uh, you know, believes in the authority and inerrancy of scripture, being someone who believes in the exclusivity of the gospel and our churches, we've always been able to kind of point to that and say, this is why they're leaving your churches. This is why they're becoming nuns because you walked away from it. Now they're walking away from our church. Now they're walking away from, and when I say our church, I don't necessarily mean Nantown River, although some have probably. Uh, I'm talking about conservative evangelicalism, which has stood on these things. And, and so it's, it's caused me in the last few years to really value, I think, the need to listen and to say, okay, why? If it wasn't that, like, and I'm still convinced that's probably why in the main, you know, mainline Protestantism had, had progressed towards um, theological liberalism to the point where they didn't believe in anything anymore. Like there was, there was no, it became so wishy-washy. Like what, what was the point? And that's what the generation that left them, they're just like, what, what's the point of this? Um, they're saying different things about us though. It's not, what's the point of this, but they're seeing, and, and they're raising, I think, legitimate concerns, Right. And we'll never know what those legitimate concerns are if we're not actually genuine listeners. Because not everyone is a nun for the same reason. And that's one of the reasons I wanted to give you some of those statistics and some of those demographic studies is, is some of them are nothing just because they've never really thought about it. Some of them are nothing because they're agnostic. They have questions that are unanswered. Some have been driven towards hostility towards organized religion. And we need to be able to listen to them and ask the question, okay, why are you what you are? And you can't successfully address concerns that you don't know are there. And you don't know they're there if you're not willing to actually listen to people. 
And to listen to people means to get past the rhetoric and to get past the, the tribalism and, and to actually just say, okay, tell me, tell me why. Like, what, what happened? What, what concerns do you have? What questions do you have? What, what's gone unanswered? What has the church elevated? I think this is a part of, I should be honest with you, part of why we're seeing this within our own camp right now is, is people walking away is because the evangelical church over the last 25 years elevated some things that we shouldn't have. We made some things central ideas in the realm of politics and, and some other things that, that people are just going, I don't have anything to do with that. And we need to listen to them and say, okay, why? Like, explain to me why. Where, where did we go wrong and, and let's try to figure it out. But we're not ever going to be able to do that if we're not genuine listeners. The, in James, you know, which is kind of, people say is the Proverbs of the New Testament, which is really not. But there are some like quick little one-liners in James that are helpful. And in James 1.19, uh, he, he writes, Know this, my beloved brothers, let everyone be quick to hear, slow to speak. Uh, we, we, need to, we need to take that to heart. When, when we're, when we're lit, when, when we are trying to get to the gospel with someone who has a definite difference and maybe to the point of saying, you believe in God, I don't, right? Cause that's the kind of polar opposites we're talking about today. Um, we need to be really good listeners because by listening, we're going to be able to know what the objections are. And by knowing what the objections are, we're going to be able to speak into them. That leads us to number three. Be loving in your answers. You can't be loving in your answers if you didn't listen. But once you've listened, now it's time to answer. And this is going to be hard for, for us sometimes. And some, for some of us, listening's easy. Um, and we just kind of nod, nod along the way. Um, I had this, I won't tell you the subject, but um, I was at a meeting with some pastors yesterday. And uh, one of the pastors started going off on something. And I listened, I really did, but I disagreed with him significantly. And um, at the end of it, I said, brother, I love you, but I want to give you a different perspective on this. And I did, and it was fine, right? But in a lot of cases, what, what's our, what's our, what do we want to do? We want to just kind of go, well, okay, <laughs> right? And not actually provide an, uh, an, an answer. Well, we're thinking about, we have, we have the truth of the good news of Jesus Christ, um, Yes, we want to be good listeners, but we also want to be good, we want to be good answers. Now, re recognize this. God doesn't need you to be righteously indignant on his behalf. And I think this is the corner that Christians have backed themselves into as Christianity has waned in our culture. Um, and the objections to Christianity have risen. We've, we've become this, um, you know, feral cat in the corner who feels they've got nothing, they can't do anything but fight. And I think that's part of the reason why Christianity in the last 20 years or so has re relied heavily on kind of the uh, political force is because we feel like we got to fight right now. Um, and, and I can understand it. I understand how we got there. Um, but I, I, I'm convinced of this, like God doesn't need me to be mad for him. Vengeance is mine, declares the Lord. Like he's got this, he's Okay. Um, my, my job is, is going to be to speak, speak the truth and love to, to people, right? You, we got to remember, you're, you're not going to argue people into the kingdom of God. Our, our goal is, our goal is to present lovingly what, what God has said. So if you go back to that first Peter three passage where you say, you know, but in your heart, honor Christ as Lord, holy, always being prepared to make a defense to answer, uh, who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Listen to what Peter says next though, yet do it with gentleness and respect having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Notice what, notice what Peter argues here. Peter says, be ready to give an answer, right? Make it, be ready to make a defense. Know what you're gonna say. Do it with gentleness and respect. So don't let the way that you answer bring condemnation on yourself. And I cannot tell you and you've probably seen this too, but I cannot tell you the number of times. And this is the thing that social media does. Social media opens us up to be able to watch how people argue. That's kind of all it is. Um, and if you watch what people, how people argue, um, 
I can't tell you the number of times I've watched people say the right thing the wrong way. And we, it's not only online that we do this. I mean, I'm probably guilty of this as a husband. Um, my wife's at home with a sick kid. She's probably watching this right now going, absolutely, you're guilty of this as a husband, right? Where I'll say the right thing, but I'll do it, you know, in the wrong way. And you've probably been guilty of this before too. And that's what, that's what Peter's warning against, right? Be ready to make a defense, yet do it in gentleness with respect. Meaning, don't let the way that you communicate it be what c- condemns you, right? But he says, he says the actual opposite. Do it in a good way so that you have a good conscience. So that when they slander you, not, not notice if they slander you, when they slander you, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. That let their accusation against us not be that we acted like a feral cat backed into a corner, but that we were gracious and loving and Christ-like. Your good behavior in Christ, right? Your Christ-likeness, that what they end up reviling is actually your Christ-likeness. And listen, if people are going to condemn us for being Christ-like, fine. Fine. We, we got to be okay with that, don't we? We have to be okay with people saying, well, you're acting like Jesus, but you shouldn't. Well, I'm going to just act like Jesus because that's what the Bible says we, we need to do. They slander us for being like Christ, fine. They revile us for being like Christ, fine. That puts them to shame, if not now, in eternity. So our answer is, we've listened, now we're going to speak. We need to do so with gentleness and respect. We go back to the James 1 passage. Where James says, know this, my brothers, let every person be quick to hear and slow to speak. Notice what he says next, slow to anger for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Remember some of these people, not all of them. I don't even think most of them are hostile to the idea of God and religion, but some of them are. And in the fact that some of them are, that may mean that they become hostile towards you. And again, God, God doesn't need you to be righteously indignant in his place. Um, you, be slow to anger. A- anger is not producing righteousness in your life. You don't have to be angry all the time. There's some Christians I want to say that to. Some public Christians I want to say that. You don't have to be angry all the time. Like, it's okay for you to just be okay. Proverbs 15:1, a soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. It can be, we can, and, and here's why we, we do this. It's just, I mean, I'm, I'm going to defend the people that I've been kind of pushing against for a minute. We are convinced, I hope you are, that the gospel is true. That Jesus is who the Bible says he is, that he has done what the Bible says he has done, and that he is the one mediator between God and man. I hope you believe that's true. I hope it is the core principle of your life, that the gospel is true. And I've built my life, I've built my family, I've pastored our church based on this principle that the gospel is true. And so it can be easy for us to become defensive over something that is so essential to our lives and to even become angry when someone challenges it. And here's what's required. It is required that we act Christ-like in that moment. Do you notice that Yeah, I mean, you can point to the temple of God and and Jesus flipping over tables and say, see, look, Jesus got, you know, righteously indignant. And he did. But who did he get indignant with? Religious people. I actually think the people we need to be turning over tables are people in our own camp. That's who Jesus turned the tables over. Do you notice who Jesus was always gracious and generous to? Sinners and people that had questions, (laughs) right? It was the prostitutes and the tax collectors and the people that, Jesus, that came to Jesus asking genuinely, genuine questions, right? Like every time in the scripture, Jesus is like overly gracious with these people. Now, he didn't lie to them. He didn't, obviously, he didn't, he didn't you know, bend and mediate the truth to fit their need or their narrative. He was, he was very clear to, with them, but. He did so lovingly and graciously. It was the hyper-religious legalist people that Jesus went in and said, how dare you? You know, he, he, those are the ones that he called, you know, foxes and even worse things. So 
I think that's important for us to hear. A soft answer turns away wrath, but a, but a harsh word stirs up anger. So, so, so we need to think, okay, what would Jesus say here? This is an opportunity for me to respond, not in, in a defensive posture, but from a posture of love and, and graciousness towards people. The last one, number four, we have to continue to make the gospel the priority. Um, in my conversations with these type of people, what I have found is they want to raise any objection that they possibly can towards Christianity. And these objections will, depends on who they are and depends on what they know and what they've considered, these, these objections will be far ranging. I mean, I've had people want to bring up historic objections, everything from crusades, uh, people that know Southern Baptist history. There are people that will bring up um, the creation of the Southern Baptist Convention um, over the issue of slavery on the wrong side of slavery um, and, and something that you know, we wish wasn't in our history but is in our history. Um, to, to more recent objections towards you know, the, the alignment of Christianity with, with other things that they may consider uh, to not be good. They will raise scientific objections. They'll, they'll raise societal objections. Uh, they'll, they'll raise you know, ob objections along the lines of things like abortion, homosexuality, uh, other, other um, societal issues. Here's what we need to recognize. All of, uh, all of those, the Bible either speaks directly or indirectly to. The Bible either speaks directly to them in, in certain ways by defining, for defining marriage for us, by talking about the sanctity of human life, uh, or the Bible speaks indirectly to them. The Bible talks you know, in, in indirect ways and in principles about everything in, in our world. And it's okay to have those conversations. I'll have those conversations with people as I listen to them and I want them to listen to me. But me convincing someone that we have a right stance on marriage, even if, they even if they come to the understanding that we have the right stance on marriage, God's view on marriage or God's view on you know, the sanctity of life or, or God's view on anything, you know, creation, whatever you want to... If, if we want to... Even if I convince them of that, they're still not a Christian, are they? <laughs> no. Because having God's view on marriage doesn't make one a Christian. Does it? No, it doesn't. Believing in Jesus for the remission of your sins, that's, that's what makes someone a, a, a follower of Christ. And so we, while we may want to answer their objection and we want to discuss those things from a biblical perspective, we always want to bring it back to the gospel. I mentioned 1 Corinthians 15 to you last week, right? Paul said, I delivered you that which is first importance, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with Scripture. He was buried and raised on the third day in accordance with the Scripture. This is what is of first importance. And what, these, what people will often want to do is bring you out to the peripheral. Because bringing you out to the peripheral takes them away from the question that is ultimately in front of them. And that is, how are you right with God? You got to bring people back to that. How are you right? You know, what is making you right with, with God? Um, and so you, 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 sure, discuss those things. These are likely people that are going to be friends or family members, or people close to you, and discuss these things with them. But recognize there is a central question that even if you can, you know, win an argument or win a debate or provide a good answer here, if you don't bring them back to the middle, bring them back to the core question of, is there a God? And if there is a God, how, what are you going to do when you stand before him and give an account for your life? I mean, you think about the fact that still the majority of these people, because remember the majority of these people were just nothing, right? But the majority of those people believed in a God. I mean, they They've just not thought about it, right? They're just not waking up any day, every day thinking about these things. They're, maybe nobody's even told them about Jesus. Maybe like that person I told you about, mission trip to Las Vegas, they've just never heard about Jesus. There's just nothing. And so they may have these, these outside arguments and you may have to address them over a period of time, but you always want to bring back to what the scripture says is of first importance, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scripture and he was raised on the third day. Because if we don't get people back to that, guess what? We're not actually preaching the gospel to people. A lot of preaching that Christians do is preaching morality to people. Morality never saved anybody. Morality actually condemned people, right? We want to bring people back to the idea that it is Jesus alone that... that 
offers us remission for our sins. So I, I hope this helps for you. I think for some of you, maybe this is eye-opening to know that th- this is, you know, is becoming a, a widely held thing in our, in our culture um, and, and how we want to interact with these, with these people in love, recognize, listening, caring for them, being authentic before them, demonstrating to them the hope that we have and bringing them to that hope in the gospel. All right, so let's pray. We'll be done. Father, while for many in this room, I recognize it, and myself included, it just baffles me to think that someone doesn't see that you're there. And, and even if no one's ever proclaimed the gospel to them, at least think about whose world is this anyway? But God, as you reveal yourself to people in, in our lives who may be in that category, would you make us into faithful witnesses of your word, the truth of your gospel, the glory of your son, Jesus Christ. Help us to keep the gospel center. Protect us, God, from the desire to be defensive, to seek to defend you as if a uh, uh, the lion of Judah needs to be defended. You are the one who defends us. So let us just be loving as you are loving towards us. Let us be gracious as you've offered wonderful and majestic grace towards us. But let us be willing to give a defense in love to those in our lives. Make us authentic, I pray, so that people will see that we needed hope and that we found that hope In the good news of Jesus, we pray in Christ's name, amen. Thank you for being here. Thank you for joining us. Those that did online, we look forward to being back with you next week. God bless you.